The following audio is from a sermon series called ReChurch, Rediscovering the Church. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the reading of God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. may be seated. All righty, I think he's going to change the lighting here in a second. Good morning, how are we doing? Good. He's going, I see him. He's, he's hard at it. Uh, welcome to Sacred City Church, if this is your first time with us. Uh, my name is Justin, I'm the pastor here. And I just want to welcome you coming in and worshiping with us, with us this morning. It's been a really busy weekend for Sacred City Church. Uh, we had... About 20 of our young leaders traveled to Omaha for Porterbrook, uh, some theological training this weekend. So that was great. We had um, a missional music night. So our worship team, our, basically our band was playing down at 11th Street Precinct uh, this Friday night. And uh, we had a wedding. So uh, Connor, Ryan, and Andrea Fleetwood got, what, got married last night. So that was great. I got to do that. So it has been, a, and, you know, uh, Sacred City's favorite team, Alabama, played last night. So... It's been, roll tide, it's been a busy weekend, all right? So I put this sermon together about five minutes ago. No, I'm playing. Uh, but it's been, uh, it has been a busy weekend. God's been really gracious to us, and I'm, I'm excited. So uh, a couple announcements really quick. Nursing moms, we have a special spot for you downstairs. We've want, ran a, a, a speaker down there, and we've got chairs and stuff. But unfortunately... Uh, you can tell we went a little heavy on the polyurethane, uh, this week. So also the, the city is re- renovating downstairs. So, uh, they've, they've refer- refinished all the hardwood floors and the studio down there. And, uh, so that's why obviously we're going to all get high for Jesus today. Um, 
as we're sitting here listening to the word, uh, we're a little worried. We've got the windows that open. We've got them open. So I apologize um, for that. So that is not ready. We'll just stay in the back or go upstairs. Nursing moms. I wouldn't go downstairs. Uh, I wouldn't do that right now. I wouldn't venture down there. We've got our kids next door um, to keep them out of the, uh, out of this, the fumes and everything. And then uh, lastly, oh yeah, for those of you who call Sacred City your home, you come on a weekly basis or, you know, every other week or whatever, you call Sacred City your home, listen, we're begging you, uh, we're asking you not to park in front of the theater, okay? Um, we're asking you to park behind the, house, behind the, the uh, cottages over here or down at the pool. Um, it, last week, we, you know, we had... Um, our numbers have been steadily increasing and we had probably one of the highest attendances last week, other than like a Easter or Christmas uh, than we've ever had in our church. And I look out the back and it, or out the back and it's just, you know, the cars, there's nowhere to park out front. So if you, if this is your home, please uh, take a hike for Jesus. All right. Park back here and, and walk and let visitors and let those who, um, have a lot of little kids. Cause we've got a lot of those, um, park out front and leave those spaces open. All right. We're, we're kind of, we're trying to do that to serve, uh, to serve our city, to serve the people that are visiting with us for the first, for the first time. So I'm going to go ahead and, and jump in and pray and let's get, let's get going this morning. Father, I thank you uh, for your son. I thank you for an opportunity to gather around uh, you, that you are the center of our worship today. This isn't for us. This is for you. And um, as we preach your word and as we listen to your word, I pray that your spirit would speak to each and every one of us, that you would um, illuminate your word that was written for us, that we would understand it, that we would be able to apply it to our own hearts. And Father, we would um, enjoy it and we would glorify you in the process. I ask that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. I ask that it would be all of you and very little of me. And uh, just lead us through this text today in Jesus name. Amen. I think that my sinuses are getting me a little bit, so. Well, again, welcome to Sacred City. We uh, usually work our way verse by verse through books of the Bible. But last Sunday, we finished up a year-long journey through the book of Genesis. And so today we're going to be launching, it's just a three-week series called ReChurch. And uh, we're still going to pretty much be preaching uh, expositionally, which means verse by verse through parts of the Bible. Uh, but we're wanting to hit on a few major themes that we've, we have found to be kind of problematic for people who jump into our church, maybe that have a more religious background. Maybe they have a churched background, whatever church that is, uh, that may be. They jump into our church and oftentimes they get whiplash and they don't really know what to do. Um, we're going to be trying to hit the three major themes or the three major problems um, that come up with people that, that join us from other churches. And so today we're going to be starting there. And we're going to be j- doing so by jumping into the b- book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, this will, this, I'm planning on, this will be our next book of the Bible that we're going to study. Uh, at the first of the year, January 1st, we plan on starting the book of 1 Corinthians, going verse by verse. Through 2014, it'll take probably 30, 35 weeks to get through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, But what I want to do today is a little bit of a case study on the church that was in Corinth, the city of Corinth. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
It's towards the back of the Bible, back of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's some sitting on the step back there. You can download our Sacred City app. You can open it up on your app on your phone, your Version Bible app. First Corinthians chapter one, I want you to follow along with us. And as you're going there, I'm going to give you a little bit of the backstory. All right, here we go. Saul was a Jewish man. He was a Pharisee and he was alive during the time of Jesus. Okay, a Pharisee, very religious man, but he hated Jesus and he hated Christians. He did not believe that Jesus was the son of God. He did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And therefore, he was committed to destroying this new religion that was spreading. Christianity was growing. And Saul, as a Pharisee, as a Jew, he he was um, hell-bent to stop this sect, this false religion of Christianity from spreading. So he was um, adamantly opposed to Christians and to Jesus. He was present and giving his full consent When Stephen, we find in the book of Acts, Stephen became the first Christian martyr. Saul was actually there holding the cloaks for everyone as they stoned him to death, as they stoned Stephen to death. Then after that incident, he apparently enjoyed it so much that he got letters of approval from the high priest to go to other towns and arrest anyone who claimed to be a follower of Jesus. Okay, So this guy was so adamantly opposed to Christianity, he held the coats of people as they stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And then he goes to the high priest and says, hey, can, I give, can you give me letters of approval that I can take some of your guards with me? And we can, if we find a Christian, we can throw him in jail and, and have him persecuted. Can, can, and they say, yeah, go ahead, go do that. All right. So this Saul takes off to Damascus and on his way, what happens on his way? The red, I love this. This is just so great on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. The resurrected Jesus shows up to him in a blaze of glory and knocks him off his horse. He blinds him for three days and he told him that it was time to change teams. He was a fool who had been fighting against the only true God. And now Jesus was going to make Saul into one of his chief, chief messengers of the gospel. So in this moment, Saul gets converted by Jesus. I'm thankful that in the past few weeks, I've been hearing stories that people in our church have been getting converted by Jesus. They come, their, their wife drags them, their husband drags them, their friends bring them. They're sitting here, they don't know what happens. Their heart, uh, as, as one person told me last week, their heart goes from a heart of stone to a heart of marshmallow. Right? That's called conversion. That's called regeneration. That's called the spirit of the living, re- living, resurrected God reaches down in the here and now and saves and changes people. Right? And with this comes a new identity. So Saul literally changes his name to Paul. Right? And Paul... Indeed, like Jesus said he would, he indeed becomes this great man of God. He ends up planting many churches and he actually writes two thirds of the New Testament in our Bible. All right. Now, as Paul goes deeper and deeper into his faith, as he gets mentored and trained up, he goes out, he's planting these churches. And in the year um, 51 or 52 A.D., Okay, so this is roughly 15 years or so, is that right? 15 years or so after um, Jesus was crucified and was resurrected. 
uh, or almost 20, almost 20 years, Paul plants this church in the city of Corinth. Okay, he's planting churches all over. We see this in the book of Acts. And he plants this church in the city of Corinth. In Paul's day, the population was probably about 200,000 people. So Corinth was about half the size of the Quad Cities. And some scholars and ancient writers suggest it was much larger, but most people say it's around 200,000. And the city of Corinth was pretty much like a modern-day Las Vegas without, without the electricity and the lights. It was full of drunkenness, orgies, and prostitution. All right? Plato actually used the term, uh, she's a Corinthian girl. And a Corinthian girl was a euphemism for a prostitute in his writing, writings. Okay, So Plato kind of just said a Corinthian girl. Like, so it was, it was known as a place of debauchery, as a place of known rampant sexual sin. All right, that's, that's the city of Corinth. So Paul targets Vegas, right? So Paul kind of targets this sinful city and he goes and he plants this church there. And Paul was what's called an apostle, a big A apostle. He got the right, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the inerrant word of God. So the books that, of, of the Bible that he wrote are actually uh, the words of Jesus because God spoke through him. So he was a big A apostle. We don't have those anymore today. But one of the things apostles do is they plant churches and then they move on. And they plant churches and then they move on. So Paul, he goes to Corinth. He spends a little bit of time there. He plants this church in this wicked city. And then he bounces to go plant more churches. Okay? But it's not long... He hasn't been gone long before he starts hearing reports that make an apostle or a pastor's skin crawl. Okay? This young church, which was probably, most scholars believe, it was probably about 50 or 60 people. All right? So we're more than twice the size in this room here. We're more than at least twice the size of of this church in Corinth that Paul's writing to. 50 to 60 people. He, gets these, he starts getting these reports about their behavior. He starts getting these reports about the stuff that's going on in the church. And so he, he, they had some serious issues. And so what he does is he decides to write these letters to bring some correction to the church in Corinth. This is what he starts hearing. The church in Corinth, they were divided they were arguing over who, who their favorite teachers were. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. And then you got that one guy. Well, I just follow Jesus. Like it's just him and Jesus, right? He's got a direct line. There's always that one guy, right? I listen to my pastor. I listen to this podcast. Well, I just listen to Jesus, right? It's like the bat phone. I pick it up and I got a direct line right to him, right? There's always that guy. They were cliquish, right? They were separating 50 or 60 people, and they're cliquish. Those are small cliques, right? But they had them. This church was jealous, and they were full of strife. They were fighting with each other. They were sexually immoral. It's actually written in here. One guy is actually sleeping with his father's new wife. Right? That's Maury Povich stuff. I can't even figure it out, right? Some crazy stuff going on. They were sexually immoral. They were getting drunk at the communion table. Now you have an issue if we say the blood of Christ. Can I just take a big swig here? Right? You don't dip. You just you're like you're throwing it back. Right? The Corinthians were getting drunk at the communion table. They were suing each other. Sixty people. They're fighting. They're suing each other. Taking each other to court. 
They're showing off with their fancy spiritual gifts. Gifts of prophecy, gifts of tongue. All, you're gonna, we're going to read it. We're going to get to study this. I can't wait to study this in, in, the, in, in, in chapters 12 of Corinthians. Right, they're showing off with their gifts. They're not loving each other very well. They were becoming radically individualistic, all about me and Jesus and my spiritual gifts. And they were degrading the community as the rich members were looking down on the poor members. And Paul says they were also worshiping idols. Is this a great church or what? Right? And they make the New Testament. The church of Corinth, shining beacon of hope. Right? City set on a hill. Right? Not very attractive group of people. So Paul, he's writing them this letter, which is a letter of correction. It's a letter to kind of, it's a couple years after he's been gone. So it's the year 80, 53 or 54. It's a couple years after he's been gone. He's getting this report back. He's heard some gossip a little bit, or some people from Chloe's household, it says, that have given this report. Things are not going well in the church. So he writes this report back. He writes this letter back. And it's funny because he actually refers to it in first and second Corinthians. He actually writes them four letters. Okay. But, um, we only have two that have survived. Only two of his letters have actually made the new Testament canon. They've actually been deemed as reliable or as inerrant and as from the word from, from, from God. All right. The other two, uh, more than likely he was mad and he was yelling at him. So they had to throw those two out. Right? So we got, we got these, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians have made the New Testament. And we're going to read and study and learn from them today. Now, what, what in the world, what am I talking about? Rechurch, what, what, why are we starting here? The reason we're starting here, in the very beginning of Sacred City, um, I had this guy and his family move from out of town and they wanted to be a part of our church. And they were from a, a religious background, and they had spent their whole life in church. And one day, after a really tough night in a missional community, that's our small, basically, house churches that meet throughout the city. One night, it was a tough night in missional community. And he says to me, this church has too much drama. Something must be wrong. This church has too much drama. Something must be wrong. And I think many of us have this uh, natural mindset, have this mindset that's kind of been forced upon us through religion and through our culture. And we don't even know we've adopted it. We don't even know we've picked it up. But it's from our culture that says things that are clean and shiny are good. Things that are messy are bad. Clean and shiny is good, messy is bad, and therefore, the natural deduction, something must be wrong if things are getting messy. If there's drama in the house, if there's drama in the family, something must be wrong. And thankfully, God, in His grace and in His sovereignty and His providential outworking, has given us, He's spoken to this issue, and He's given us this book of 1 Corinthians to combat that mindset in us that thinks a church is a safe, clean, sinless group of people. It's a place where everyone is good and moral And we go to church to be surrounded by people who won't get on our nerves or rub us the wrong way. The Bible says that a church should not be easy. 
And I think many of us have adopted this mindset of the church that it's a place that we go, that we surround ourselves with people who all agree with us and they're the same political affiliation and they have the same views on all, you know, social, you know, social work issues and, you know, that we should surround our people that don't really bug us very much. If church was easy, we, our Bible would be a whole lot shorter. We probably wouldn't have the majority of the New Testament, seeing as it was written predominantly in response to drama, in response to people going off, in response to sin, in response to failures in each of the churches. And this is what Augustine said. St. Augustine, he said this about the church. The church is a whore. And she is my mother. That's what Augustine said. Let me just put, I just like the saint Augustine said, the church is a whore and she is my mother. Now that may make us nervous, right? Especially us respectable middle-class Americans, right? Might make us a little nervous, but I think we're going to see that today in our text. So if you've got your Bibles open, look at 1 Corinthians 1 verse 1. Paul. So I already gave you Paul's backstory. This is Paul. Look, you might want to underline the word called. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, starting right here. That word called is an important word. All right. What Paul is establishing his authority right away as he's speaking to this church. What he's saying is this. I'm not here by my own authority. I'm not here because I want to be. I'm not here because I chose teams. I'm here because one day I was riding on my donkey, ready to kill Christians, and God chose me. So deal with it. I'm here because God chose me. I didn't choose him. He chose me. Salvation begins right there. It's not my will. It's God's will. All right? So Paul starts off. He's going to echo this. And he says, I'm Paul. Called to be an apostle by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And our brother Sosthenes, Sosthenes is his fellow worker right here. To the church, okay, right here. What's that word church? That word is called the ecclesia, okay? The Greek word is ecclesia. And what that means is, here we go, we're going to get this word again. Ecclesia, the church, what is the church? The called out ones. That's what ecclesia means. The called out ones. Those who have been called by God. Those who, like Paul, have been knocked off their horse. Their heart has been changed. They see Jesus with a new light. Heart went from hard to soft towards Jesus. Okay? The church is a group of called out people. Called out from where? Called out from the world. Okay? Called out and called into. Now look at verse 2. Keep reading. The, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Okay, the church of God. It's not Paul's church. It's not their church. It's the church of God that is meeting in the city of Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. What's the word? Called to be saints together with all those who in every place 
call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Okay? And so here we go. What is the church? Paul says right here, it's the people of God who've been sanctified in Christ Jesus, who then call upon the name of Jesus, and they're called to be saints together. This is how we say it at Sacred City. This is the easiest way to to zero all this down. The church are the people of God, saved by the power of God, for the purpose of God. The church is the people of God, saved by the power of God, for the purpose of God. The church is the people of God, saved by the power of God, for the... Okay, now listen. This is a beautiful word here in in verse 2. To those, the church are the people who've been sanctified. Sanctified. Now... When you think of that term, they've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. They've been called to be what? Look at the text. Called to be what? Saints together. All right. With, with, and then this is where you get included. With all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. We get to be included in that. So the people of God, saved by the power of God, for the purpose of God, are sanctified. Now, what do you picture when you picture sanctified saints? What do you picture? Hmm? Sanctify, is it the church lady? You picture the old Saturday Night Live church lady? What do you picture when you picture a sanctified saint? Because I, I want to just ask, like, we're, we're two verses in. Has Paul forgotten who he's writing to? Look, maybe this side right here. Let's just say there's about 60 people right here, okay? There's about 60 people right here. I probably, you know, as Paul, he probably knows the majority of people by name. He knows the guy who's sleeping with his dad's new wife, right? He knows the one, the two that are suing each other. He knows the divisions. He knows the fights. He knows the quarrels. He knows all the sexual morality. He knows all the sin that's going on. And he doesn't start out with, hey, moron, stop it. It's not how he starts. He doesn't start with, let me give you six reasons why you're stupid and you need to, right? Has Paul, we have have to ask ourselves this. The apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, God is giving him the words to write on this page for our good and for the good of the church of Corinth. And he starts out by going, hey, you sanctified saints. Called people of God. Remember, I'm called as an apostle and you've been called into the body of Christ. You are the people of God, saved by the power of God for the purpose of God. It's amazing. And this, some of you, this is going to blow your theological grid. If you're a really moral person, this might cause a complete mental meltdown. Sexually immoral, divisive, gossipy, materialistic, individualistic, money-hungry, spiritual show-offs. And Paul starts off by calling them sanctified saints. Now, what does it mean? Maybe some of us are like, well, I don't even know what sanctified means, Justin. Sanctified means they have been made holy. Holy saints. But why then do they not look holy? 
to those who have been sanctified. Now, I'm going to have to do a little bit of work here. So we're going to put our theological hats on for a second, okay, for a minute or two. This, in the Greek, to those who have been sanctified, is a perfect passive participle, okay? Perfect passive participle. What that means is that they have been, past tense, and they continue to be, present tense, and they will always be perfect tense, holy through the work of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Put your finger in 1 Corinthians right there and go to chapter 6, verse 11. I want to show it to you again in chapter 6, verse 11. When you're there, say there. Look, he go, actually, verse 9, he's going to say, he's going to go through this list of Sinners, they, you know, all these different types of people. But then in verse 11, he says this, and such were some of you, but you, what's the word? Were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. You can flip back over. Okay. What does this mean? You have been sanctified. Many people think of sanctification as something that just is kind of ongoing and growing and, and it's after justification. Okay? That is true. But it's not the only way sanctification is used. And if we primarily go there, we get into this kind of rule-based religion that I end up living my life based on how well I feel sanctified right now in the moment. How well I'm becoming more holy in the moment. So listen to this. What I'm going to, what we label this, some theologians call this, what we're going to see right here is positional sanctification. Positional sanctification. All right? I want you to see this is important because Paul is addressing a prideful, factitious, right? Divided, just ugly church. And he starts off by calling them saints, calling them holy, even amidst all their failures and all their sins. Now, what's he doing? Paul has got good theology. And what he realizes is that in Christ, all of these jacked up believers... All of them that are struggling with their sanctification, struggling with their sin, struggling with their idolatry, struggling with their sexuality, they are still positionally sanctified. What does that mean? It means this. The Bible teaches that when a person is called by Jesus and turns to Jesus in repentance and faith. They say, my way is wrong. I'm a sinner. Jesus is the perfect savior. When a person does that, listen to me, they are instantaneously justified and sanctified. Instantaneously, in that moment. This is their new position in Christ. His Jesus' perfect righteousness, he lived his life absolutely perfect, never made a mistake. His righteousness gets imputed to them, gets placed upon them as if it was their own. They are declared right and holy by God. Now, 
What's crazy about this is Martin Luther would use this term, simul justice et peccator, in Latin. What it means is simultaneously righteous, simultaneously just, and still sinners. So a person who has accepted Christ, a person who's believed in Christ, has got two things going on. Positionally, in Christ, they're sanctified, they're holy, they've been made right, they're just before God, but at the same time, in their flesh, they're still sinning. They're still struggling with sin on a daily basis. This is why many people call the righteousness that we receive from Jesus an alien righteousness. What that means is it's a righteousness that's not from us. It's a righteousness that comes from Jesus. So now as I go to pray and as I stand before God, I'm not standing there going, did I pray enough this week? Was I good enough this week? Does he remember that sin? Did that sin count? I I stand there in the presence of God, in the righteousness, in the right standing of Jesus Christ. By faith. That's called positional sanctification. Now, the one that most people, if you are familiar with this, most people are familiar with, is called progressive sanctification. Okay? So I want you to say, positional sanctification is being made holy by the work of Jesus through faith. So I'm a jacked up sinner. I call on Jesus. Jesus makes me holy. Boom, I'm holy. That's positional sanctification. Okay? Progressive sanctification is this. I'm progressively... Day by day, hope, it's more like one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, two, you're right. It's all over the place. But progressively, I'm being made in the image of Jesus and I'm coming to live my life in line with my justification, in line with my positional sanctification. So it's like this. You're holy. Be holy. There's a big difference between you're holy be holy, then go be holy. There's a big difference there. If you don't get that, you're missing the gospel. Okay? This is crucial for us to believe that Jesus Christ gives us a new identity. He positionally sanctifies us, positionally justifies us. He says, I have made you holy through my life, my death, my resurrection. In my sight, in the Father's sight, you are now holy. Now learn to live like that. That's positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. The church and religion likes to mix that up. And the religious people like to say, go be holy. Your sin bugs me anyway, so go be holy. Go be holy to be holy. You earn it. It's... You know, even when people talk about progressive sanctification, sometimes they think that it's like God is more and more happy with me. God isn't going to get more and more happy with you. Your sanctification doesn't change God's smile or God's disposition towards you one iota. Why? Because thankfully, He's looking at you through Jesus. So He sees you as perfectly holy. This is wonderful news for us. Because it means God's not about our dutiful obedience. Like when we suck it up and we try harder and we're holy, God's not like, ooh, I'm happy. God is eternally happy in the person and work of Jesus. So his love and his affection towards us never changes, whether we're in the throes of sin or not. Praise God. 
So as salvation is a free gift to us, so too is sanctification. So too is sanctification. This process of being made into the image of Jesus. All right? Now, keep it in 1 Corinthians. I want you to go to Colossians. This is the last time we'll be flipping around, I think. It's to the right. It's to the right a few pages. Colossians, it's after Philippians. We're going to go to Colossians chapter 3. Verse 1, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. When you're there, say there. All right, here we go. Read it. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Look, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. First off, you better, we need to know if you, if you took, I don't even remember what it is now, some, some sort of math or statistics or something, these if then statements, right? If then, if this has already happened, then this now happens. If he starts off with an if then statement, if you've been saved, if you've been positionally sanctified, if you've given your life to Christ, if you've been called, all of those, if that's happened, then you need to realize that your new life, This is so, God does not call you into morality. He doesn't say, come be better people. He doesn't say someday when you're sinless, you'll be a good Christian. What he says is, if God has saved you, if your heart of stone has went to a heart of flesh and you've embraced Jesus by faith, you are now a new person and you have a whole new life. And where is your new life? Go to the text. Where is your new life? Verse 3. In Christ. Where is your new life? In Christ. Where is Jesus right now? Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. Right? Jesus is in all authority. All authority has been given in heaven and earth to Him. If anyone has a right to judge you, Jesus does. But your life is in Him. There's no more judgment. There's no more condemnation. In Christ is your life. And... And he says, what do we need to do? Set your mind on things above. We need to remember that. Remember that positionally. Where are we? We're in in Christ. We're standing at the right hand of God. God is happy with us. Not because of our behavior, our moralistic efforts that we finally, you know, we spent, we haven't done that sin for three days and God's really pleased with us. We are in Christ, the perfect sinless son of God, positionally. That's where our true life is, Christian. So, let's flip back to 1 Corinthians. The new life of the Christian, the life that has been hidden in Jesus, is a life that is being lived, here we go, in a progressive discovery of the fact that we've been justified and sanctified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christian, hear me. This is your new life. You are in Christ and your new life is a progressive discovery going deeper and deeper and deeper into the realization that I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and my good works are filthy in the sight of God. That my moralistic efforts, that my achievement, 
That everything I take pride in is a stench in the nostrils of God. And the only thing that commends me to the Father, the only thing that makes a smile upon Jesus' face, or a Father's face, is Jesus' perfect obedience on my behalf. And you've, grown, you've been in church all your life, and you think that you know what you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. You think you know what that means? I'm telling you, progressive sanctification is you going deeper and deeper and deeper into that, realizing, I don't believe that. Most days of my life, I don't believe that I'm justified and sanctified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Most days, I think God loves me because I'm doing well. Or God's upset with me because I'm not doing well. You ask people all the time, how's your Bible reading going? Oh, it's not near as good as it should be. How often do you read? Not enough. There's this constant, just like falling short mentality. As we go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into this, that is to say, as we go deeper and deeper into the gospel, it changes our heart. And the sanctification that Jesus achieved for us is worked out in our everyday life. As we go deeper into realizing we were a bankrupt sinner and we couldn't save ourselves and we can't sanctify ourselves, that it's all grace and it's all Jesus changes our heart. Now, let me ask you, how does this happen? Or maybe we're asking, that's what we need to ask the text. Well, how does this happen? How do we go? How do we continue to discover the gospel? How do we continue to go deeper and deeper into this reality that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Now, let me answer this with a bit of sarcasm. I bet you're an awesome Christian when you're at home by yourself. You're probably super patient and kind when you're all alone, aren't you? I'll tell you what. I am the most patient, kind, and understanding parent when my kids are all asleep. I'm awesome, actually. I feel so controlled and I feel great. One of my mentors, Bob Thune, in his new book, Gospel-Centered Community, says this, everyone is a saint in isolation. Right? I never snap at people when I'm in my office by myself. It's amazing how that works. That book goes on to say that church, people of God who've been saved by the power of God for the purpose of God is meant to be, listen, a formative community, not a functional community. A functional community, you are at the center. It's all about you. And what you do is you come to this church. Now listen, you come to a church And if you get something out of it, it's beneficial and you'll stay. It's functional. It serves a function in your life, right? If these people are convenient for me, if I get along with them, if we have the same cliques and the same hobbies and the same personalities, and I really like them, this will serve a functional need of my heart. I kind of need community occasionally. So this will be serve a functional need of my heart. And therefore I'll stay and I'll be a part until somebody really gets on my nerves. And then I'll go find another functional community. Looking at the church as a functional, consumeristic group of people. And Thune, in this book, brilliantly says, no, no, no. Church is meant to be a formative, formative community. That means this. God puts you in a group of people that are meant to press you deeper into the gospel. 
What does that mean, Justin? It means you're meant to be around people that bug you so much. The only thing that, you, that will keep you in community is believing the gospel that I am just as bad as they are. I was saved when I was a wicked sinner. I'm still continuing sinning. I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that power of the gospel is the only thing that can keep me in this community. When we think of church as a formative community... This is the church of God. God is at the center. God is putting people around it to form me into a certain type of person. That means, listen to this. Every person in your missional community, every neighbor that you have, every boss that you have, every coworker that you have, if you believe in the sovereignty of God and you believe that he, this is how he works out our sanctification, he put that person by divine providence... That one person that just gets on your nerves, God put that person there for your sanctification. He put that person there to press you deeper into the gospel. See, the relationships inside a church are meant to be seen as God's providential outworking, that a sovereign God's doing it, that he puts the people in your life that are meant to bug you enough where you listen. And this is a question that religious people don't ask. And if we're going to get, if you come from a religious background, a church background, we need to do the hard work. I'm one of you. We need to do the hard work of asking ourselves this question. Listen. Why... Does this person's sin bother me so much? See, God puts the people in our life that are meant to bug us enough where we start asking the hard questions like, why does this person's sin get on my nerves? Get on my last nerve, right? This makes every problem this makes every single problem, every relational problem that we have a gospel opportunity. It's a chance for us to go deeper and deeper into our understanding of the gospel and our believing the gospel and relying on the Holy Spirit. That difficult person in your life is a gift from the Holy Spirit. That difficult child is a gift from the Holy Spirit. That difficult neighbor, boss, coworker is a gift from the Holy Spirit to press you deeper into the gospel and cause you to rely more heavily on the Holy Spirit. This is why I love it. I hate it. I love it. I hate it. This is why Jesus loves to put religious... Religious and moral people in community with notorious sinners. He loves to put drug dealers with power brokers. He loves to put MBAs with high school dropouts and sexual prudes with strippers. He likes to put them in the same community and just throw them all together and go, let's see how this works. Listen, this is, I want you to see that that this, Lord Jesus, thank you. This is one of the most beautiful things about the church of Jesus Christ. It's the only place in the world where true community exists. Every other community, if you study it, every other community is homogeneous. All the people 
live this way. They're all this uh, socioeconomic background. They're all this race or this color or this creed or from this part of town. Or they all, you know, work out together. They do the same thing together, right? The church is the only heterogeneous, true community where there's just people from every race, background, socioeconomic background. Just though every person on the planet can come together in Christ. And keep their individuality, keep their uniqueness of their, of their culture, and yet be renewed in the gospel. It's, it's brilliant. It's beautiful. Our culture wants to see, can people who, can Republicans and Democrats truly live in community together? Can rich and poor truly live in community together? Can the moralistic and the uh, rebellious still live in community together? Can they do this? Can it actually happen? Only in the church can it happen. Only under the power of the gospel can it happen. Only when every single person, including the moral person, sees themselves as a broken sinner saved solely by the grace of God can it really happen. And it can happen in the church. See, at Sacred City, people sometimes have to communicate. When I say sin, people usually think I mean sexual morality and uh, you know all the stuff that I've listed here. Okay, but that's not, and it's, those are sin. Those are, those things are sin, but your moralism, thinking that if I'm good, God loves me and that my good behavior is somehow commendable to God. That's just, that's a sin as well. That's a sin that's just as heinous as sexual morality. Thinking that God's in heaven going, woo! 15 minutes with me. Great job. You're so much better than that guy next door, right? It's just, listen, Flannery O'Connor, in one of her novels, she's writing about this guy and she says this. He knew, speaking of really moralistic, upright, dot your I's, cross your T's. She said this. He knew that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. What does that mean? That means if I'm really moralistic, I don't need the cross. The cross, if I'm a really good person, the cross is the biggest overstatement in history. Jesus, you could have threw a little lamb's blood down here. I didn't need the blood of God to cover my sin. I'm actually doing pretty good. Now that guy over there, he might have needed the death of God. But this guy, a little lamb's blood would do the trick. See? Rebellious people and moralistic people, they're both sinning by trying to avoid Jesus. They're trying to avoid the cross. The moralistic person is refusing to admit that I am worse than I ever thought possible. Right? The the rebellious person is refusing to come to Jesus because they don't think Jesus will love them in their sin or they're, they're using their sin to avoid the cross. They don't want, maybe they don't even want to admit that they're sinners, whatever it is. But both people are using morality or immorality to avoid the cross. And guess what? This is the church that Paul's writing to. This is the church that we're living in. This is how jacked up and messed up we are. And the church was there too. We used to have this saying in high school, probably not appropriate, but I'll say it anyways. You know, we'd always say, man, that girl, she's good from far, but she's far from good. (laughs) And that's the church. You stay back from the church. Boy, that church looks great. 
I love the worship. I love the preaching. Oh, I love, I love the, and then you get involved in the church. You get up close and you, oh, right? She's good from far, but she's far from good. You get up close, you get involved in the missional community, you get involved in the true community and start seeing people and their sin gets on your nerves. I thought this was like, if you're moralistic, I thought this was a church. I'm seeing sin that I would see at Walmart. And it it shocks us. But Paul wants us to see. And what every other New Testament letter tells us is that our problems, that problem, we think it's a moralistic problem. We think it's a sin problem. What it really is, is a gospel problem. All of our problems, including our frustrations with churches and the people that make them up, are really gospel problems. I'm forgetting that I've been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Look at verse, let's go to Corinthians verse 20. We're going to see this. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God, look, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Guys, listen. The gospel, I'm going to say it like this. It's maybe, maybe crude. The gospel is stupid. The gospel is foolish. The gospel doesn't make sense. If, if, you, went to, if you went to school and you've got a higher degree and you, you're, I mean, yeah, you can get into it and it's, it's brilliant. I love it. But it doesn't make sense. It looks like foolish. You're not on your way up to enlightenment and getting, becoming better and better and better. The way to the cross is down. I see myself and I see my sin as darker, 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 darker. It's upside down. And look what Paul continues to say. For Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A what? A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. When we preach Jesus, it's going to be a stumbling block to the moralistic and it's going to be a stumbling block to the rebellious. It's a stumbling block to all of us because at the beginning of it, we have to admit our absolute bankruptness. We got nothing to offer to God. Keep reading. For the fool, uh, yeah, 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For, for consider your calling, brothers. Some of you need to highlight this. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of no, noble birth. But what did God do? God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that, look at this, no human being might boast in the presence of God. Everything you bring to Jesus is nothing to him. Other places say, what can man bring to, what can man bring to Jesus? What can man bring to God? Nothing. 
God doesn't owe us anything. All of our good works are stench in his nostrils. The only thing that commends us to the Father is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our everything. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our holiness. He is our goodness. Only Jesus is good, right, and perfect. Only him. Look at verse 30. Guys, this is what we need to remember. Moral, if you're moralistic, you're good do-gooder, or if you're immoral and you're re- re- rebellious, this is what we need to remember. And because of him, because of God, because of Jesus, because of what he's done, we are in Christ Jesus who became to us. He is our wisdom from God. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. So that as it is written, let no, let the one who boasts, boast only in the Lord. Why does God use the foolish to shame the wise? To kill pride. Because we're moralistic and we think it's our pride that lifts us up. This is why the gospel is absolutely scandalous. We are still sinners. You are just as jacked up as your neighbors. If you think that you come to Jesus and as you grow in spiritual maturity, you become less of a sinner, you don't have a biblical view of sin. You will never become less of a sinner. You are a sinner. The plus or negative, that's it. You are a sinner. That's it. And actually, the closer I get in my walk with Jesus, it's kind of like the closer I get to the light. The the more I can see my stains, the more I can see my sin. This is still happening. I'm the pastor. This is still happening in my life, right? You think, well, he's somewhere. No, this is where I'm living. Looking back, I think that I, I came to Jesus primarily out of intellectual and moralistic pride. I came to realize that Christianity was right and I wanted to be right. So I jumped into the right boat. I want to be right. I want to be right. Little did I realize that that was a Trojan horse. See, I came to Jesus through my pride. He was calling me and through the Holy Spirit and by faith, all that. But I came to him through pride. But then through Jesus, he's been progressively killing my pride. Listen, moralistic people, what we like to do is we like to, we like to focus on external sins, sexual morality, drunkenness, all these different things, right? But what Jesus is trying to do is use those surface sins and others for the moralistic to reveal your deeper sins of pride, jealousy, control, Envy, power, and self-righteousness. See, we get in these accountability groups and I was sexually immoral this week. I looked at pornography this week. I did. How many times do people get together and go, I was envious this week. I was deeply, deeply proud this week. I was self-righteous this week. I really looked down on my, how often? This is how the gospel takes us deeper. 
It was pride that got Satan kicked out of heaven, not sexual morality. See, I look back now and I see just how bad of a sinner I was and I continue to be. And this just gives me a greater picture of the grace and the goodness of Jesus. Why do we confess our sin every week? Why? Because we all need to. That's why. Because we need to learn the language of repentance. We need to shape our heart through some of the actions that we do. We need to shape our heart in the process of repentance. We need to get used to it. Just because you didn't do any of the external things this week. You didn't steal from anybody. Right? You didn't beat anybody up. You know you did the internal things. Lust in your heart. Pride, whatever it is, envy, jealousy, you know you did. So we repent. All of us, Christian and unchristian that are gathered in this room, we repent. Now, what I hope you to, uh, what I want you to see, and what you will find out, if you're jumping into Sacred City, what you're going to find out is we're very, uh, we're not very different from the church in Corinth. We've got all this junk going on too. And if that shocks you or that causes you to steer clear and stay uninvolved, maybe stay on the sidelines and not really get involved in the mission or community or be in a fight club or really develop relationships. What I want you to see right away, this is not everybody else's sin problem. This is your gospel problem. And you have jumped ship on the gospel. You have bailed on God's church because it's not convenient for you because it messes with your control and your power issues. See, if you're a moralistic person, you love to be in control and you can't be in control in a missional community with a bunch of people who are not moralistic and they discern sin in different ways than you. It's going to bug you. But I want you, I want you to hear this. Your control and your power issues, those hidden issues of your heart are the very things that Jesus is going after. He's trying to save you from those things. That's slavery in your own heart. And Jesus is so much better than that. He's trying to pull you out of that. He's trying to wake you up with that. And his glorious way of doing that is surrounding you with people that get on your nerves. Jesus could have picked anybody he wanted to when he's picking disciples. He picks a bunch of goofballs. Jesus could fill his church up with whatever people he wanted to. He calls them. He knocks them off their horses and says, you're on my team now. He could do that with anybody. He could do it with the powerful. He could do it with the elite. Who does he do it with? Look around. (laughs) Right? He fills churches. He's only got one type of people to choose from, honestly. Sinners. So Jesus fills churches with sinners and that attacks some of our pride. He's trying to show you that when you feel like you're looking down on someone or you feel like that person is, you know, different from you, they sin differently and their sin bugs you. What he's really doing is he's trying to show you that you're trying to stand before God right now on your morality and in your morality, not in Jesus' righteousness. They say that the the foot of the cross, all the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all equal sinners at the foot of the cross. In Ephesians 2.14, it says that Jesus Christ 
himself is our peace. That means it's all, and he says in Ephesians, all the dividing walls of hostility. Everything that divides us, money, neighborhood, race, sex, background, political affiliation, all of those things in the gospel gets obliterated. Jesus Christ destroys all the dividing walls. And now we stand as sinners saved by the sheer grace of God. And we can love each other well in that. Jesus is our righteousness. He is the hub of our wheel. And only Jesus gives us this deeper and deeper understanding and experience of the gospel that can keep us in community and on mission with one another. We say the only way to make disciples is in community and on mission. And the only thing that will keep us in community and on mission is the gospel. Everybody else gets on our nerves too much. So, what is the church? God's people, saved by God's power, for God's purpose. His people, His power, His purpose. It's not about you, it's not about me, it's about Him. And He puts us here to form us, to give Him glory for our joy. Now, Let me ask you this. Have you ever been around a group of Christians or maybe you're in missional community, maybe you're in fight club and you're thinking, what is wrong with these people? Why can't they just get their crap together? Seriously. Why can't they just grow up? How hard is it? Wake up. You've got an alarm on your phone. You got an alarm. Just wake up. How hard is it to go get a job? How hard is that? Stop looking at porn. What's the big, quit it. Like how many of you have been sitting across from a Christian or in a fight club or in a mission community and you've had these thoughts? Listen, this is God's grace to you this morning. You've forgotten something crucial. See, God didn't just place you in that community So you could help them get cleaned up and become more middle class. It's called gentrification. That's not why you're there. God placed them in your life to help you experience the gospel in a deeper way. If you're moralistic like me, you kind of think that God has, you know, put you in a community to help everybody else. In reality, God's put you in that community so that they can help you. You need to be saved from your moralism. You need to be saved from your good works. You need to be saved from your sweetness. You need to be saved from your theological correctness. All that to say is remember, if you're moralistic, you might be feeling really guilty right now. There might be a lot of shame. And I'd say remember the gospel. Remember the grace that's found only in the gospel, that their problem is a gospel problem and your problem with their problem is also a gospel problem. Listen to this. this Do you you know the most known chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians? It's read at more weddings and it's on more Hallmark cards than any other. What is it? 13. 1 Corinthians 13. 13, hmm, maybe love is patient, love is kind, love does not boast, it is not arrogant or rude, 
It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Listen, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. One of the most jacked up churches in the whole New Testament gets a whole chapter on love. That's not Hallmark, ooey gooey love. That's not chocolate and hormones here, right? This is sin-scarred relationships. This is Christians suing each other. This is difficult people. This is sexual morality. This is a whole lot of drama. That's the context for the Christians' call to love. And it's in this context, a context of true community, where the power of the gospel gets really put on display. When you're tempted to write a person off, you love them because you remember that Jesus didn't write you off. When you're tempted to lecture, you're patient with them because you remember Jesus didn't save you with a lecture. He saved you by dying on the cross for you self-sacrificially. When you want your own way, you believe the gospel. You hope in Christ, you endure all things. So as you are sitting in a missional community and you're tempted to look down on those who sin in different ways than you, remember 1 Corinthians 13. Remember, God put that person in front of me to love them. God put that person in front of me to remind me how much he loved me. A jacked up church. A church full of messed up people is the only community where Jesus is the hero. Over and over and over and over again. I don't get saved and then become the hero. You don't get saved and then become a hero. Jesus is the only hero. It's not about you. It's about him. Jesus is 1 Corinthians 13. He is patient, patient, kind. You could go down the list. That's Jesus. He is love. And by surrounding us with people who seem to be crazy sometimes is the only way for us to come to experience his love in progressively deeper ways. It's the only way. If there's another way, he would have done it. But this is the way. Get a bunch of sinners put them together, give them the gospel, like tying two cats' tails together. See how this works. This is why, actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, or chapter 2, verse 2, Paul summarizes everything like this. Speaking to this jacked-up church, <clears throat> I know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Listen, if you're like me and you struggle with moralism, you need to get used to saying that. Your people in your missional community, your friends, your neighbors, they don't need to hear how awesome you are. They don't need to hear about your successes and how you overcame all the sins of your life. You know what they need to know? I know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Don't look at me. Don't look at my morality. Don't look at where I'm at in my life. Look at Jesus. Christians have been sold this bill of goods that people are going to look at your life and go, look at their kids. They're so amazing. I want to be a Jesus follower. 
Look at their finances. They're so awesome. Look at their house. They're so awesome. Look at their morality. They're so awesome. And I just want to be moral like that person. And I'm going to tell me, how do I, how do I be saved? I've never heard of anyone coming to Christ that way. Ever. They come to Christ by seeing Jesus. He's better than your crappy morality. Your stuffed shirt, top button, button, look down on everybody. He's better than all that. I'm the same way. I'm, I am a moral person, typically, right? Jesus is better. Sacred city, let's be people that don't point at ourselves. You don't point at your pastor. You don't point at your man. You point at Jesus. He's our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our justification. He's our hope. He's the only one who loves us when we fail. He's the only one who dies for us when we're still trying to earn our way to him. He's the only one that gives us grace. I know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. All I got is the gospel for you. It's the only answer. We are worse than we ever thought possible. But praise God in Jesus. We are simultaneously more loved than we could ever dream about. That's the gospel. You are worse than you thought possible. There's no way Jesus will like you in yourself. There's no way you can clean yourself up enough and be good enough and be moral enough for Jesus to look down and go, now I got him. You are dead in your sin. But at the same time, Jesus goes to the cross and he says, I will purchase their salvation. I will live the perfect life for them. I will die a substitutionary death for them. I will send in the Holy Spirit. I'll be raised on the third day in new life for them. He loves you that much. So I say this morning, turn from your moralism, turn from your immoralism and turn to Jesus. Embrace the gospel and watch what it does to your heart. Watch what it does. It's the greatest news in all of history. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for being a messed up man, getting to lead a messed up church, just like the Apostle Paul and Corinthians, that we are no different, that we are actually very, very, very similar. We all need a perfect Savior, that we're great sinners and we need an even greater Savior. I ask that the gospel hammer uh, would put moralism on the anvil and you would smite it today. That you would lay us wide open. You would destroy our efforts at being good enough. You would destroy our efforts that try to commend ourselves before you. And not to crush us, not to hurt us, not to maim us, not to make us look bad. You're doing it because you love us. You do it because the gospel's better. Your righteousness is better. It's all by faith. I pray that many would turn to you in faith. They would turn from their good deeds and they would turn from their bad deeds and they would turn to you in faith this morning. Thank you for the grace found in the gospel. And as we, as the baptized people of God, saved by the power of God for the purpose of God, as they come forward this morning to take part in communion, you would remind us again of the gospel. Your body was broken for us. Your blood was spilled for us. Because we could not save ourselves, We were so bad, Jesus had to die for us, and yet we're so loved, they wanted to die for us. Thank you, Father. Seal this upon our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.